So a lot of times our hospice patients come to us, they don't know what to expect. They're scared. They've been told things that I consider very irresponsible. Things like, we can't do anything else for you. There's nothing else we can do. I think that that particular sentence should be eliminated. There's always something we can do. This is Dishing Doulas podcast with Joanne Hahn and Karen Hendrickson of Deaf Doula Network International, changing the world's approach to death and dying one conversation at a time. Seriously, let's talk. Whether you're an end-of-life professional, a family caregiver, or you simply want to gain comfort with end-of-life matters, we're here to help expand your comfort with our shared mortality, end-of-life planning, and the important conversations. The views shared in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and our guests, and are for information purposes only. Be sure to consult with your own healthcare and legal professionals for any personal, medical, or legal advice. We're here today with Helen Bauer of Heart of Hospice. Helen has been a nurse for over 30 years, specializing in hospice and end-of-life care since 2009. She's a certified hospice and palliative registered nurse with experience in patient care, nursing management, quality, and compliance. Her passion for advocacy at the end of life can be heard on the Heart of Hospice podcast, talking about hospice philosophy, how to get the most from your hospice experience, and advanced care planning. Over the years, Helen's helped hundreds of families and hospice professionals navigate their hospice journeys by providing support, education, and encouragement. Okay, welcome Helen, our host of the Heart of Hospice podcast. Hi, it's so great to be with you guys. Uh, We always like seeing you and spending time with you, Helen. Helen, we'd love for you to tell us about your history with hospice and how you came to be a hospice nurse. You know, I'm not one of these nurses that felt called to hospice, that it was my mission and, you know, that I was drawn to it. I was looking for a full-time job. Like so many people, I had been a stay-at-home mom working part-time and my kids were grown and didn't need me that way. So I was just looking for a a full-time job where it would be a good fit and good schedule for my family. I had a really good friend who was this amazing spirit-filled nurse. And she said, hey, I work at this hospice agency and we have uh, a position open for an RN. And maybe you'd be interested in working there. It's a great group of people. And my thinking was nursing is nursing is nursing because I was clueless. (laughs) So I went over there applied, got the job, became an RN case manager, and was blown out of the water by the work that they were doing. Amazing. And that was 14 and a half years ago. And I've been with it ever since. And it was totally a stumble, but I absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. Wow. And so often we end up in these spaces without necessarily conscious intention, but find ourselves here. Well, and if you had asked me 20 years ago, or even 30 years ago, 33 years ago, when I started in nursing, oh, you know, would you be interested in working with geriatric patients or seriously ill patients, patients who are dying? I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I want children and labor and delivery. And what I found is I don't ever want to work labor and delivery. And I definitely don't have a heart for working with children. That's a little too too much of a tender spot for me. But I I love working with seriously ill patients. And so can you share with us a story of the most impactful first experience as a nurse within the hospice environment? For me, that's a very weird story because my first experience impactful patient experience with someone who was dying was my first day in the field. Wow. In orientation. So I had done all the book stuff, reading the policies and watching the films that they made you watch back then. And I was doing a ride along with another nurse, an LVN. And it was her day to see a patient that she'd been seeing for several months And the family had called and said, you know, she's not having a great day. And when we got there, 
it turned out that the patient was actively dying. She wasn't just having a bad day. She was having her worst day. And I watched as this LVN started teaching and supporting and guiding and comforting and assessing and doing all these things. And it was amazing. The symptoms were managed. The patient was comfortable. The family really leaned in. And the woman who was there at the bedside, the family member, got into bed with the patient. And for anybody who has worked with someone who has complications from end-stage Alzheimer's disease, it's a very debilitating disease. This particular woman, the patient, was curled up in a fetal position. She was nonverbal. Her mouth was hanging open. You know, she was stiff, contracted. She was unresponsive. And I watched as her family member curled around her and cuddled her the way you would a child when they're falling asleep. Wow. And she told us that when the patient was alert and aware enough to communicate, she told them she was only afraid of one thing about dying, and it was dying by herself. And so while I watched, while this woman was taking her last breath, her family member began to whisper in her ear, we're here with you. You're not alone. We're going to be great. We're doing fine. We love you. All of these things. And I watched this death transpire this way. And it was incredibly intense. And so that, that was my first experience. I'd never seen someone die in the home before. And I had been a nurse 15 years. I'd been a nurse 15 years when that happened. And never, never seen that. So, so you not, can imagine. Yeah, it just stuck with me. And probably not at all what you would have anticipated or expected in the role to be witness to. Oh, gosh, not at all. The only death I'd ever seen was in the hospital. So it was very sterile, bright lights, a code team, no family present, um, no support for the patient other than clinical support. It was all about clinical medical interventions right? There was a physician, there was an ER code team that handled all of it. And the patient did die. But there was this huge piece of humanity that was lost because this death was nothing but a medical event in the hospital. So to witness something at home in, in the patient's own home was very different, very different. What a great lesson though for your first day. I know. And not every death is like that. You know, the family doesn't always engage. Sometimes patients die by themselves. Sometimes the symptoms aren't managed. Um, you know, sometimes the family walks in and the patient has already died. But for me to be able to see this and to see this kind of family engagement, the woman who got in the bed with the patient was actually her daughter-in-law. And I was very surprised about that, that it was not her daughter. It's her daughter-in-law. Right. And just to, to watch that interaction. And plus the LVN that I was working with was amazing. And that taught me from the, the get-go that every member of the team is valuable and they bring incredible skills and contribution to the care of the patient. And so who would you identify as the team members? So we had a team that consisted of LVNs that worked in the field, RN case managers, who sort of oversaw the care of the patient, coordinated that. We had chaplains, we had social workers, and of course, we had a hospice medical director, a physician. We also have aides, certified nurses aides or nurse assistants that help manage the personal care for the patient, bathing, changing bed linens, things like that. And would you see family or loved ones as part of the team as well? Oh, absolutely. Hospice teams never take the place of the family because we are not there 24-7. I would like to say that we are, but of course we don't run hospice that way here in the States. And that family 
is the expert. We always listen to the caregiver because the caregiver is the expert. They've been doing the job and have been the coach on the team before hospice ever appears most of the time. So Helen, what do you see as the most common gaps for patients and families who go to hospice care? You know, the the caregiving gap is the biggest thing. That is the biggest thing. Well, because hospice provides all the support, but we can't be there all night long. We don't provide sitting services. We we don't provide caregiving support that's hands-on 24-7. And there are over 55 million unpaid family caregivers across the United States. And granted, not all of them are providing 24-7 care for someone who's seriously ill. But the, but hospice doesn't meet that particular need. And we know caregivers need more help than they're getting, more help than the hospice team can give. So that's really where I see the gap. Just wondering, do you have volunteer hospice people down in the U.S.? We do. We do. That is part of regulatory requirements through Medicare, which is our federal program that, that pays for our hospice patients for most of them, um, there's a requirement that 5% of our patient care hours come from volunteers. So hospice agencies are always looking to find people who are willing to go out and make visits in the community and see the hospice patients. And it's really a special connection because they have a different sort of skin in the game, a different sort of engagement with the patients. They're friends and their confidants and they are comforters and companions but you know they're not they're not providing medical interventions they're not providing grief counseling you know they don't they have less of an agenda it's less structured and families and patients get really comfortable and volunteers a lot of times feel like friends for our patients friends and companions do you feel that when families end up on hospice, that they're well prepared and have a good knowledge of what to expect at that point in time? Oh my gosh, no. Never, hardly ever, hardly ever. Here in the United States, we have bad habits about having advanced care plan conversations. It's one of those things, I, I had a boss that said, everybody's job ends up being nobody's job. So it's really everybody's job in healthcare across every silo to talk to patients about end of life wishes and advanced care planning. So therefore nobody ever does it. <laughs> it's always left until there's an urgent need, something precipitates out the conversation. And when those conversations happen, oftentimes they're not early enough. We don't have them upstream enough. You know, when people are younger and healthy, that's the time to be having those conversations. So a lot of times our hospice patients come to us, they don't know what to expect. They're scared. They've been told things that I consider very irresponsible. Things like, we can't do anything else for you. There's nothing else we can do. I think that that particular sentence should be eliminated. There's always something we can do. But to tell someone with a serious illness, there's nothing else we can do. So we're going to turn you over to hospice. It feels like a drop and a letdown, like everything you know and all the support that you've had falls away. You're being shoved off a cliff. And now you're supposed to try to reform a brand new relationship with a new care team of people you don't know with a philosophy that you may not understand, or you may have ideas about it that are completely wrong, which is very common here. As opposed to saying we no longer have any further treatment options for you. But what we can do now is focus on comfort and care, right? And move you on to hospice and environment that will strongly support your needs in that area. Sounds different, right? Yeah, it's all about changing direction. And I think there are ways of framing it that 
don't make a patient feel abandoned by the team that's been taking care of them. You know, a lot of times patients, especially chronic diseases that become acute, like kidney disease and certain types of cancers or respiratory illnesses, neurologic illnesses, they've been with their physicians and their care teams for a long time, sometimes years. And then all of a sudden they're told, there's nothing else. We don't have anything else for you here. So we're not going to be treating you. We're just going to shuffle you off to someone else. When what it should be is a transition that shows confidence from one philosophy to the next. We've exhausted all the treatment options we've got for you here. So we want to change direction a little bit. We want to put you in touch with a hospice or a palliative care physician, a palliative care team because we feel like they'll be able to better meet your needs. And here's what you can expect from that type of care. Get people ready. I think that makes a lot of difference to be able to have those conversations. What's the average um, stay in hospice, Helen? It's pretty short. I haven't looked at it in a while, but last thing I heard I want to say at least 50% of our patients are on for two weeks or less. And these are Medicare hospice patients because we do have some private insurances that, you know, that pay for hospice. So we do have patients that are using their insurance, but the majority of hospice patients in the U S are covered under Medicare. So two weeks or less is a really short length of stay when you need to set up the service and you want to immediately provide the kind of support and create trust. And it's, that's not much time. Is your hospice care in the U S is that done in the hospital? Up here, we have specific buildings, some of them. Most of our hospice care is done at wherever the patient calls home. We call it routine home care. So our patients live in, private residents. They may live in an apartment. They can live in a nursing home, which we call a long-term care facility. They can live in assisted living, which means they it's like an apartment or independent living, but they also have some additional help that they pay for. They can actually be unhoused. We have unhoused people across the United States that are also terminally ill. So basically, we see patients wherever they call home. We do have facilities or buildings that are devoted to hospice, but that depends on payer source sometimes. And some of those places are related to what the patient's status is. So we have a higher level of care for patients who are in a symptom crisis that need nursing around the clock. It's called general inpatient care. And some facilities are just about general inpatient care. So in Canada here, it's typically less than two weeks as well that an individual will experience hospice. And like Joanne says, we do have buildings sometimes that have limited beds available. And then other times they receive hospice care in the home or wherever they are as well too. What do you think can be done to help to support a longer time frame with this hospice care support versus just in the final weeks or days of an individual's life? I think it's all about communication and education. And I would like to say that the education needs to happen to the private sector, you know, just to people who would be consuming the care. But I think the education, at least here in the U.S., needs to be done inside the healthcare system as well. Because those upstream conversations should be initiated by our healthcare providers. And we don't. And I think it's because of a lack of education. We're very siloed in the United States. Our specialties are very pieced out and they don't necessarily talk to each other and coordinate the way they should. Our record keeping systems don't communicate. There's no universal electronic documentation. But if we were able to have those conversations earlier, before the crisis, when people are not exhausted and grieving and worried and financially burdened, we could have conversations that were more meaningful and richer. We'd have more time to have them 
one of the things I like to say is an ambulance is a terrible place to have an advanced care plan conversation. Can you imagine yeah. that? When you think about it, that vision in and of itself would make for a great cartoon because it's so inappropriate. Yeah. How are you supposed to make a decision when you're in this crisis and panicked? It's so I, I really upstream and earlier conversations that are more relaxed, that are more robust, give you time to reflect and then give you time to come back to that topic. Because an advanced care plan discussion is never a one and done. Even if you know everything, I could, could tell you everything in my advanced care plan today. But a year from now, my goals may have changed. My relationships may have changed. My caregiving system may have changed. My provider may have changed. My priorities may have changed. So having them earlier and being able to have those follow-up conversations I think that's the key to it. But education's got to happen all the way around. A friend of mine's mom died October the 1st. That was a Sunday. On the Thursday, they said to my friend, we're going to transfer your mom to hospice now from the hospital. She's got maybe four or five days to live. And they sent her off. That was the only conversation that they had anything about the end of life is coming up. We could tell visibly, but they never said she's dying, actively dying and sent her off. How sad is that? I have had patients in similar situations where they were being admitted to hospice. And when you ask them, what do you understand about your illness? And what do you understand about why you're being placed on hospice service? They did not know that they had a terminal illness with a limited life expectancy. The way I describe it is we have a, a wedding tradition. It's sort of old here in the United States where the bride wears a garter and she'll throw the garter to all the single men. But at some weddings, nobody wants the garter. No, none of the young men will catch it. It's supposed to be you're the next person to get married. So they won't catch it. And the garter just drops on the floor and everybody looks at it. To me, the death and dying conversation is a lot like that. It's the garter that nobody wants to touch and it drops on the floor. Everybody sees it. They know it's there, but nobody wants to pick it up. A great analogy that is. Yeah, it's so true. How unfortunate that the people that were entrusting with our healthcare, our healthcare professionals, are so uncomfortable in these conversations themselves and choose to avoid it themselves in relation to supporting their patients. No That's, wonder the rest of us are so uncomfortable with the conversation and don't want to step into it. If those that we're entrusting with our care, who are entrusting with the guidance with respect to next steps and what needs to be done, don't want to have the conversations. It's totally true that we have a tendency to avoid them. And it's not just education. You're right. It's it's discomfort. <laughs> because if I've had a family that I know has relational issues, right? Everybody's got some type of family dynamic going on. If there's a, a bad enough crisis, <laughs> you stir the water and the mud rises to the top, right? It, the crap comes up. So any bad feelings, any poor coping mechanisms, relationships that have not been great, all that stuff rises to the top. And I know as a nurse, there have been times that I thought, if I ask this question or I start this conversation, this place is going to blow up. And instead of a 30-minute allotment for what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm going to be in here an hour and a half. We're going to need the social worker and the chaplain in here. We need a family conference. And these people are going to throw down. But if I really just advance care plan light, <laughs> then I don't have to deal with that crap. And I know that I've done that in the past as a nurse. I know that I've done that. I have a friend who's a doula and she's also a care aide. And she was taking care of a patient. She goes into the house and one of the family members say to her before she goes in to see the patient, mom's dying, but she doesn't know it. So don't say anything to her. So Shirley goes in, talks to the mom, and the mom says, I'm dying. I know that, but my family doesn't. So don't yeah. say anything to them. Don't tell the kids. Yeah. 
That's where the hospice people learn to say the hard stuff. I have sat with people, kids, whose adult parents, very, very much older parents, and the parent is dying and the family says, we don't want you to say hospice around mom. We think it'll upset her. And I learned to say those things courageously and say, your mom probably already knows she's dying. So this is the time to have those conversations. So Helen, do you have any tips or pieces of information that would be invaluable for the patients and families? I would advise and offer gently because this is not an easy thing. I would say, place your trust in the team and try to engage with the whole team because each person brings a special set of skills, something that you might need. And a lot of times patients and families have a bias or they just completely misunderstand about what the role of that particular team member is, especially chaplains spiritual counselors. But I would say try to engage with the whole team and see how that support can really help. I would also say speak honestly. Don't be afraid to make a complaint. And remember that a complaint is different from complaining. Hold your providers accountable. Make a complaint respectfully. And if the care isn't what you should be getting, if it's not a good fit, find another provider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the United States, um, hospice patients can transfer between agencies. So if you have an agency that's not a good fit, if you've made your complaint, made your request and nothing changes, you can change to a different agency. So I think it's important for people to be aware of what their rights are. Do you find though, Helen, that people are hesitant in complaining because they think if they do, they're going to get less care? Oh, absolutely true. I think that's absolutely true. When you barely have enough energy to brush your teeth because you're taking care of mom or dad or spouse or sibling or one of your children 24-7, you don't have the energy to look for another agency, to shop around, to make a complaint, to say, okay, I've, I've talked to my nurse, but now I want to talk to her supervisor or I want to talk to the administrator of the agency. Patients and families don't have time for that. They don't have time and energy and mental space for that. It just makes their, their caregiving burden harder. So I, I think a lot of times they're fearful of doing it. I remember I had a patient and his wife tell me that they'd had a bad experience with either a home health or a hospice agency, and it was really bad. And I said, oh, did you make a complaint? Did you let them know? And they said, no, we were afraid they would take our insurance away if we did that, which, of course, they can't do. Yeah, but people these don't know people- that. They don't know that. And I think it makes them a little victimized just from lack of information. I know here with doula clients that I've worked with that have had issues with respect to the quality of care that's been provided, whether it be hospice or home palliative care. When I broached the conversation of filing a complaint with our patient quality care center here, much of the same thing, they're fearful of what it will mean for the future care that they receive the reputation that it might create for them in the small community where they're receiving the care within that professional care team. And then also everything has sucked the life out of them as it is with respect to all the things you talk about on energy and capacity to even begin to make complaint that they just don't have it in them. And so unfortunately what happens here oftentimes is that that complaint never gets filed. And so you know, the opportunity to learn better, to do better within our healthcare system is lost. It's true. We just keep making the same mistakes. But so many caregivers also work outside the home, work full time. So they go from their full time paying job to their part time caregiving non paying job. And they just don't have the space and the time and the energy for all that. And I think I'm like you, they they worry they'll be labeled as a troublemaker on some list somehow and that nobody will want to take care of them. 
And so do you see when individuals get to this place of terminal illness and the foreseeing of moving on to hospice and requiring hospice care and end of life, that there's a role for death doulas to support this process within hospice? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. The doulas are, they are there in these gaps that hospice leaves. Because in the United States, I think the hospice structure and the system and the philosophy are great, but there are definitely spaces that we don't fill. Doulas are able to step into that. They are the companions. They walk alongside our patients. They may not be medical people, but they are providing education. They're providing guidance. And then they also are able to bring in the grief support, the bereavement care, all of these different things, these different components, and really round out the care that a hospice team is giving. Are doulas pretty much accepted down in the U.S.? I think that I would say no to that. I would say no, that they are not accepted. But what I hear is the doula voice becoming more and more amplified, more and more mainstream. And I see doulas beginning to volunteer at hospice agencies and then being incorporated into the teams. And I also know of people that are hiring doulas privately in addition to the hospice care. One doesn't take the place of the other. They're both made to work alongside each other. But I still see a lot of, the word ignorance sounds unkind, but just a, a lack of education about the role of the doulas or the fact that they're that, out there. When I spoke to our executive director of our hospice association that, that runs the volunteer portion and explain what a doula does, first words out of her mouth was, that's what our volunteers do. And she wasn't open really to listening to the differences. Oh, really? In the U.S., volunteers do not do that type of work. Well, they don't they do. hear either. Yeah, they, we, we don't. Our volunteers do not educate on the dying process. And, and I would be very hesitant to say that they provide grief support. That's too specific a term. Yeah, I think they provide comfort in their presence and their companionship, but not the way a trained doula does, no. And that's the same here too, but the ED at that time wasn't open to listening to what the differences were. It's just our volunteers do that. We don't need your help. Yeah, it all comes back to education. Yeah, and it's fairly common in a number of hospice environments across our country as well in that mindset and that misunderstanding in recognition alone that when a death doula is essentially, if you would say, contracted to the patient and the families right off the bat, what comes with that is more time and opportunity to be engaged with family and patient, more uh, time and opportunity to get much more familiar with their needs and their desires and what, the, what they can benefit from in the way of education and guidance, patient advocacy, caregiver advocacy, all of these things, right? That volunteers have a valuable and important role to play, absolutely. Hospices have a valuable and important role to play, absolutely. It's this integration of all of it together that can create the best, I think, experience and outcome for patient and families with this willingness to be open to inviting death doulas into that team to support as well. If hospice agencies really think about the value that doulas bring, it makes total sense for a doula to be working with a patient. A hospice agency is going to get fewer calls after hours from panicked patients. They're going to get fewer calls to 911 because there's been additional support, additional presence in the home, additional education. Uh, you, we know that our patients and families need more than one explanation. I can't tell a family one time, this is what the dying process is going to look like for you guys and lay it out and expect them to just carry that and remember every bit of it. They just can't hold all that. It's too, too much and too intense a situation for them to remember all of it. 
But if you've got it coming from a doula with this special focus that is a companion type relationship, it becomes very intimate, then I think that benefits the hospice agency. I think it actually makes things easier. The doula can be the eyes and the ears of the hospice people when you're not there. Absolutely. And like you say, there can be a different relationship and we can provide you with information that you might not otherwise have received. I agree. I totally agree. I think in some cases too, the doula actually creates opportunity for there to be a more cohesive and a better relationship between patient family and the healthcare professionals as well too, because as a doula, you help to alleviate some of the misunderstanding and the confusion. You help them to remove what's emotional versus what's factual in relation to some of the experiences that they might have and what's going on. And that benefits the whole relationship. Oh, yeah. And I think there would be things that a family member might confide or ask a doula about things that the hospice agency is offering, like, say, the use of morphine, talking about medications and how they're used. Doulas can educate around that, even if they're not clinical. I realize some doulas are nurses as well. But a doula can educate about that, reinforce, and I would say promote trust in the interventions that are being offered. So Helen, you're the host of Heart of Hospice podcast. I am. The Heart of Hospice podcast has been on air for, man, seven seasons. We started season eight in the summer of 2023. So I'm an old podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) How did it start? How did you get going on your podcasting? I had a friend of mine that also works in hospice, and we would always have these conversations about patients coming too late to the service, and how do we get the word out there, and we were both avid podcast listeners, and he said to me one day, you know, there aren't any good hospice podcasts out there, and very innocently, unsuspecting, I said, that's true, there really aren't. And then a little while later, he said, you know, somebody should start a hospice podcast, a podcast on hospice and palliative care again. And I said, yes, somebody really should. (laughs) And then not too long after that, he said, we should start a podcast. And it made perfect sense. We wanted a place where people could go anytime they had a minute to listen to something. We wanted it to be free, accessible not coming from an agency because we're never trying to sell anything on the podcast. We wanted content that provided value for anybody who was going to consume the care and for people who are providing the care. Because even people who work in hospice don't necessarily know everything about all the different aspects of end of life care. And we learn from each other all the time. So that's how the podcast got started. And of course it was, horrible at first. We think the content was great, but we were teaching ourselves. And and through the years, we have had the privilege of interviewing people that, you know, shouldn't even be talking to me, right? I'm a podcaster and a hospice nurse. I'm not known all over the United States. I would like to think my podcast is listened to like that. But I have talked to some amazing people doing innovative work and have been in this industry for 50 years doing fantastic stuff. So valuable. It's how we found you or how you found us. That's right. You both have been on my show and just being able to collaborate with like-minded folks who are wanting to get the word out and they, they see the good and the benefit in end of life care. It's, it's an amazing thing to be able to, to talk with all these people and collaborate with them. And don't you think it makes a big difference when there are a number of voices across the world that are having these conversations? So even if topics are similar, but you know we're having a conversation here today and somebody else might be having a conversation a week from now or a month from now or what have you, whether it's you know on a YouTube or on a podcast, all of these conversations help all of us collectively, right? Change perspective and gain better comfort and understanding about this space of death caring. 
Oh, absolutely. I learn from you guys and being on your show amplifies my voice and the work that I'm doing. My friends become your friends and being on my show, you guys teach me and I get to share that with my listeners. It's so valuable to have, valuable to have connections like that. The more we talk, the more people get to know how valuable those conversations are. So can you tell us too, Helen, about the Heart of Hospice Health Navigation Services? Tell us about that and what's called you to create that as an extension of offering through the Heart of Hospice? So I launched the service last year as part of the Heart of Hospice LLC. It's called Hospice Navigation Services. And what I wanted to do was to be able to provide unbiased, expert information to people who were having to consider hospice care and end-of-life issues for themselves or for someone that they care about. In hospice here in the United States, when you need to hire a hospice agency or choose a hospice agency to provide your care, when you contact them, you're going to end up having a conversation with somebody who is a marketer. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying they have skin in the game and they want to sell you something. They want to sell their agency to you. So with hospice navigation services, because I don't have an agency and I don't provide patient care, I'm able to give unbiased, impartial information about hospice and end-of-life care to people who are having to consider it. So I've been doing this long enough that I can answer questions. Um, in a navigation session, we can talk about what your care should look like. We can troubleshoot the care that you're already getting. We can talk about how to shop for an agency. We can talk about what your rights are if the care is not a good fit. Um, now, in, in the navigation sessions, I don't provide any legal or medical or billing advice to anybody. Um, I can't talk to you about your insurance, and I'm not going to tell you what kind of medicines you should be getting. I will tell you what to ask your agency, what to ask your nurse. But it's all about providing people with, with information and support so they feel comfortable engaging in hospice care. So they can draw on their own personal agency and advocacy in the process. Excellent. Right. Fabulous. Right. So important. Well, the whole idea is empowering and equipping people to, to guide their own boat, you know, to drive their own bus, as I say. I think it's important that hospice people recognize we are not in charge. We are the quarterback and the team, but we are not the coach. The patient or the caregiver is the coach and they call the shots. Yeah. So People, often that gets lost. It, it does. It really does. I think a lot of people are hesitant or afraid to question the healthcare team and ask, why are you doing that? Or what is this going to do for me? It's true. It's true. So my mom is 91 and she was raised in a generation where you didn't ask the doctor why, and you didn't refuse anything. Yeah, the, you, you did exactly what the doctor said. And I will ask my mom, are you comfortable with this? Well, not really, but the doctor said to do it. And to her, that's the final word. When in truth, in fact, you have the right to choose whether or not you engage in any or all of the interventions your medical providers offer. Like a blind trust, right? A blind trust in faith and without opportunity to, or thought that you should consider whether does this really align with what I truly want for myself? Right. But if you never have those conversations to bring in some self-awareness to what you want, and then the lack of education pairs with that, it's a nasty combination for receiving care and making decisions at end of life. Yeah. You're handing it over. Yeah. Your control, your journey, your story becomes written by someone else. Yeah. What a way to end your life, right? This is how I think of it in relation to end of life care and hospice care is that if we're handing this over to the medical teams to make the decisions for us, to call the shots for us, 
they're writing the story of our exit, of our final chapter. And it may not be something that we would personally want for ourselves had we given the opportunity to think about it. And it sometimes can turn out pretty messy or messier than it might otherwise. If we and had- for most of us, they're only going to know us for 14 days. Right. Wow. Not a long time. No. Is there any other advice that you can give to people, Helen, or words of wisdom that you want to share? The biggest thing I would tell people is ask your questions and then ask them again. If you can't remember it, that's okay. It's not like drinking from the fire hose. It's like having a water cannon sprayed at you sometimes when you're entering into this this situation where you're going to engage with end-of-life care. So ask your questions. And if you need to repeat it, go ahead and ask again. Any hospice team member worth their salt is going to answer that question for you 10 times if you need it. They'll give it to you in writing. They'll repeat it. They'll give it to you in a language that you can understand, in verbiage that makes sense to you. They're going to leave that information with you and they'll be accessible to you. But ask those questions and be comfortable with asking as an advocate. That would be the biggest piece of advice that I could offer. That's such a fabulous, important piece of advice. Um, So often we hear people say things like, well, I don't have enough time or my doc doesn't have enough time. So I'm not going to ask, or I don't know how to ask. Thank you, Helen. Thank you for showing up with us today, for sharing your wisdom and your insight and your experience. And being in this space with us, we so appreciate you and your expertise and your knowledge and all that you bring to the world here. Thank you so very, very much. If you could just tell us how people can find you and connect with you. They can connect with me on theheartofhospice.com. That's my website. And if they want to book a hospice navigation session, there's a web page there, easy to book. I offer a 30-minute complimentary navigation session. I also offer a 60-minute navigation session for $95. And the sessions can be conducted either by phone or by video call. And if you book the $95 session for 60 minutes, you can have more than one person on there. So a little bit of a chance to have a family conference. I'm also on Facebook. You can find the Heart of Hospice there, Instagram. And my handle there is at the Heart of Hospice. And on Twitter, it's the Heart Hospice. And you can also find the Heart of Hospice on LinkedIn too, if you're a healthcare professional and you want to connect there. Excellent. Thank you so much, Helen, for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. My privilege. catch the next episode of Dishing Doulas podcast and more at www.ddnint.com and be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. You can send any questions or comments to admin at ddnint.com and connect with us at Death Doula Network International on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Dishing Doulas podcast, where we're changing the world's approach to death and dying one conversation at a time.